I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending June 7th. Today we'll be talking about a $10 billion acquisition that seemed to come out of nowhere. Infineon bought Cypress Semiconductor. Also, the Design Automation Conference, DAC, was held earlier this week. If you know what's happening with design tools, that gives you a good handle on what's happening with the semiconductor industry. While we were at DAC, we got to talk with Wally Rines, who ran EDA Vendor Mentor for a long time. He's now CEO Emeritus. He's someone who knows the business inside and out. In a moment, we'll hear what he has to say about the state of affairs in the electronics industry. But first, Infineon's bombshell announcement. Our London correspondent, Nitin Dahad, filed the story. Junko Yoshida, one of our global editors, talks with him about what the deal means. Hi, Nitin. I'm here in Las Vegas. I guess you're back in London from Taiwan. Is that right? Uh, absolutely, yes. I've just come back from Taiwan and um, did quite a lot there, and you'll be reading more about that later. Well, as soon as you came back from Taipei, you aren't even recovered from your jet lag yet. And boom, this big announcement happens. Infineon to buy Cypress Semiconductor at $10 billion. What's going on here? What motivated, do you think, Infineon to buy Cypress? Can you walk me through? Yes. Um, so first of all, it's worth noting, this is the biggest acquisition that Infineon has made. And it catapults Infineon to number eight chip manufacturer globally. So what was the motivation? Well, we need to be aware of the megatrends. The chip industry is going through its usual cyclical downturn. And as a result, we've seen a wave of acquisitions in recent months to bolster revenue and reach. In its earnings, Infineon recently indicated flat revenues. So I think the main motivation is it sought a suitable addition to the business that would help meet both short-term and long-term revenue and business goals. So wait, Nitin. Infineon has not been so active in big M&A activities for the last several years, while others were jumping into big deals. Yes, this is a big deal. And yeah, I, th- I think uh, as we've as we've reported in EE Times, there's been a number of uh, such big acquisitions, especially in connectivity. And we, uh, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah. But uh, this acquisition enables Infineon to offer a wider portfolio. And what they say is to link the real world with the digital world. Yes. And open up the automotive and IoT markets. Nitin, if you have to name three, what are the three things among Cypress product lines or technologies that attracted Infineon most? I would say it's connectivity components, microcontrollers, and the NOR flash memories. Connectivity is clearly important for IoT and automotive wireless. Microcontrollers for the automotive electronic architectures and infotainment. And automotive memory, which is a hot growth area. I mean, I had a demonstration of some of their uh, memory at Embedded World in uh, Nuremberg last year. So, you know, they are sort of demonstrating why that uh, that sort of fail-safe memory and that fast uh, reaction memory is quite important. Um, as one analyst told us this week, $400 million of Cyprus automotive business comes from infotainment, microcontroller, and connectivity solutions. But Infineon's ADAS solutions will also be reinforced by the growing demand uh, for NOR flash memory for autonomous driving. Got it. So just to be clear, microcontrollers Infineon will get from Cyprus are more of infotainment MCUs rather than safety-critical microcontrollers, which Infineon already has, right? 
So yes, I think um, there's a, there's a broad reach, and I and I was sort of looking at the Cypress website, and yeah, you know, there, there's microcontrollers here, you know, obviously for, for various applications. Yeah. But yes, I mean particularly this adds for infotainment and things like that. So as you as we cover various news, we realize that NXP just bought Marvell's Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, and now we hear Infineon is buying Cypress. Why do you think that? Connectivity is suddenly getting hot among chip companies. For Infineon, is this an IoT play or an automotive play? I think it's bigger than that, but uh, yes, definitely IoT and both automotive. But uh, let's just look at you know sort of uh, connectivity. It's huge everywhere just now. With 5G already starting to roll out, I think many industries are really looking to see how they can benefit from 5G's play beyond just the consumer. I know, you know, yeah, people talk about faster speeds, etc. But we're looking now into enterprise and industry and the applications there. So all the chip players have been talking for a while about developing products. Yeah, you know, for a smart connected world. So, for example, smart cities, smart factories, smart mobility, smart buildings. Smart everything, yeah. You, know, you name it, will have smart. Right. And as long as there's a business case, connectivity is going to be the vital link for all of these. I guess this is my last question. I read Infineon Cypress deal will make Infineon the biggest supplier of automotive chips, bigger than NXP. How so? Yeah, I found that interesting actually. Um, and actually, it was backed up by one of the analysts we spoke to uh, this week at our IHS Market. He said the combined automotive revenue of Infineon and Cypress was almost $5 billion in 2018. Wow. So the Munich-based company will likely become the number one automotive semiconductor supplier in 2019. While other European companies that we report on, like NXP and ST, also have a big play in automotive, I understand it's mainly going to be the wider reach and broader solutions enabled by the acquisition that would put Infineon ahead. Thank you so much, Nitin. Thank you, Junko. Junko and executive editor Dylan McGrath attended the Design Automation Conference in Las Vegas earlier this week. DAC is one of the longest-running shows in electronics. Reporting from the show floor, the two discuss how the U.S.-China trade war was casting a long shadow over, well, everything. So you and I are at DAC. Uh, this is the day two of DAC. And um, we're trying to figure out what we have learned so far. Um, what's the, what strikes you as the biggest news here? Well, I think as we were talking before, uh, obviously we've heard a lot so far about uh, you know various technical advances in the EDA realm, but the fallout from the China, Huawei, US fiasco is really casting a shadow over everything here. And that's yeah. kind of what's on everybody's minds. And that's what we've been trying to, trying to get more information about. Right. But most of the executives we talked to they're not going to use the word like fiasco, right? <laughs> no, no. They, uh, I, you know, again, as we were discussing, I mean, the prevailing uh, sentiment, or at least the answer that they give, is that everything will be fine. It's going to be worked out. It's, you know, a little bit, little bit uh, scary or nerve wracking right now. But yeah. there's just too much money at stake for yeah. all sides not to come together and and work everything out and, and live happily ever after, which <laughs> That's sounds not great, debate, but, but uh, you know, I personally, I, I'm, I really am not so sure at this point what's going to happen. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was actually moderator for this 2019 DAC 
under 40 innovation awards panel. And one of the guys uh, who was on my panel was no show. And his name is Yunji Chen. He's a mm -hmm. professor at ICT, it's China Science Academy in Beijing. And um, he did not come because I think official reason is uh, he, his visa didn't arrive in time, at least by Friday. But he may have chosen not to come because the IEEE president last week, actually, I think it was last Wednesday, mm -hmm. um, sent out a letter to its members and uh, informing them that the employees of Huawei is because they are on a so-called blacklist, or entity list, they call it, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that we are not allowed to trade, so that the uh, specifically the IEEE president said that the employees of Huawei are not allowed uh, to participate in IEEE's um, review process or editing process Standard. of their standards, mm -hmm. uh, standards and so forth. You know, that had a huge backlash. And then actually the president did walk back Sunday saying that the uh, IEEE as an organization did talk with the U.S. Commerce Department and got the clarification, so it's okay. You know, but it's like, clearly, they jumped the gun, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Jumped the gun. Yeah. You know, you wonder why they did that without um, clear guidance. Yeah, without without checking right. with the government first. It was sort of like you, you know, step ahead right. of the, the facts. And I did actually talk to several people about this, mostly uh, people who are in academia or actually uh, some in industry. But... Uh, they're all, you know, many attendants here, uh, actually, IEEE members, and uh, they really had strong words about this, you know, you know, rebuke. I mean, it's, 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 it's the one guy said, well, IEEE president should have been, should have been impeached, <laughs> or at least to, um, we should, you know, elect a new president. And uh, others are saying, you know, it, it's, it's really problematic because more and more, the organization like IEEE has become so U.S.-centric. Mm -hmm. And right. uh, when you think about um, engineering, the world is so global, it's it's just sort of unthinkable. You know, um, the I think one, another guy was said, you know, organization like IEEE should protect engineers, not should not be in the business of excluding certain parts of the you know membership body. But I think the best quote that I got was from one of the university professors. He said that, uh, you know, you've heard of, um, in French, it's called médecins sans frontières. I think it's in English, uh, doctors without borders. Yes. So IEEE organization like that should function as engineers without borders. You know, I mean, just personally knowing very little about the whole situation, like yeah. I said, I'm surprised that they they did that without some clear guidance from the government. It wouldn't surprise me a great deal if that was part, you know, if if they were directed to do that by the government. But knowing that, you know, they just needed to clear it up with the U.S. Commerce Department and have since reversed position. Yeah, could have waited. Yes. <laughs> While they were at DAC, Junko and Dylan caught up with Wally Rines, the CEO emeritus of Mentor. 
Dylan got first crack and asked about how U.S.-China relations are affecting the electronics industry. Any time that free trade is disrupted is a worry for everyone. And as you may have heard Tim, uh, Tony Himmelgarn say, uh, he is very optimistic this is going to be worked out. There is just too much to lose by all parties involved. Uh, but uh, you ask for parallels. I have spent four years as chairman of the uh, Technical Advisory Committee for Semiconductors and Semiconductor Manufacturing Equipment uh, that advises the Department of Commerce on export controls, mm -hmm. which is exactly what you heard about, the applying yeah. for validated licenses. And at the time I became chair of that committee, the U.S. had a dominant market share in semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And over the next 10 years, that share diminished greatly in favor of Japan. Mm -hmm. And one of the key reasons cited by customers was that the Japanese were very efficient in reviewing and granting licenses, and it was a matter of days to get a validated license in Japan. And in the U.S., they also could be efficient, but there was too much uncertainty. You, know, you would be, you get a license in uh, less than a week, uh, three times in a row, and then the next one takes two months. Mm -hmm. Well, the customers couldn't tolerate that right. because you had to get a license for spare parts. Yeah. You had right. to get a separate license for the data manual to use the equipment oh, wow. from the equipment itself. And so we became what's called the vendor of last resort. That is, see if you can buy the equipment from a Japanese supplier, if not, buy it from the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so it was very damaging, and we certainly don't want that to happen again. Junko sat down with Ryan separately to ask about how the new hyperscale companies like Google and Amazon are creating fundamental changes in the semiconductor industry. Now that new players are coming to the market, new players in silicon, um, we're talking about Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Tesla, all that. You had a slide in your presentation. So what is the impact of these newcomers to the market? What is the impact on the EDA business? Uh, can you sort of summarize what are you seeing? So the first thing is it's a big financial opportunity for EDA because these companies have lots of resources, they tend to be uh, very well funded, and so they grow the EDA market uh, for existing tools substantially. But they also uh, bring other opportunities. They have, in many cases, different priorities. Uh, I don't know if you remember the uh, presentation on the Google contact lens that was at DAC five right. years ago. Yes, yes. Now, why didn't Google just have somebody else design the chip that went For in the that. contact lens? Yeah. I have to conclude it's because Google doesn't uh, want to get in the chip business. They want to own the information, and they don't want to make that chip available to other people. They want to own the system, the, system. They, the contact lens, the relationship with the doctor, the program on the cell phone to control the insulin pump. And so a lot of the IoT applications I see, whoever is developing the silicon plans to make their money from the information, Shin. not from the but chip. Selling cheap chips to in body, that's right. not the model. Right? So that's a, a, it's yeah. a different motivation. Right. And uh, so it brings people into design that wouldn't normally do design themselves. Uh, and so adds to the design community. And then there is this massive uh, 
commitment to electric cars and uh, autonomous driving that is stimulating all sorts of creativity by systems people. Uh, and systems people have tend to have different priorities. They want to know how the chip will work in the system. Right. Uh, and that's what Tony Himmelgarn was talking about. He talked about the PAVE system that Mender has, and I'm sure there uh, will be many alternatives, but fundamentally the ability to do a simulation or emulation of a chip operating in a more complex environment, in stimulated by level. software, yeah, yes. Right. So in that case, yeah. they have uh, this pre-scanned software done by a company called TAS, uh, creates a simulated output of the sensors in your car, right? and that input goes into the emulator, which has a model of your chip, which processes the sensor information, right. and then talks to these other simulation models, which are in uh, uh, what's called AIMSIM, that can be transmission, brakes, steering, and sends all the signals. Right. And then you're able to put scenarios in, thousands of scenarios. In fact, they have prepackaged scenarios for driving the car around and you, uh, you know, run into a telephone pole or whatever, and uh, you can see how your, your system behaves. Right. Different uh, priority, but the, back to your original question, yeah. the largest single impact is dramatically expanding the number of companies and people doing design of chips and even printed circuit boards. We close with a few bits of high-tech history, events that happened in the first week of June years ago. In 1892, Thomas Edison received U.S. patents for a system of electric lighting, an incandescent electric lamp, and other elements of his direct current electrification system. In 1977, the first personal computer, the Apple II, went on sale. It was based on the cheapest 8-bit microprocessor that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak could find, the venerable 6502 from Moss Technology which ran at a pretty darn fast 1 MHz. In 1980, the first U.S. government solar power plant was dedicated. Built in Utah, it was at the time the world's largest, with an array of over 250,000 solar cells that could generate up to 50 kilowatts of power. In 1983, the movie War Games was released. I still get chills when I hear... Shall we play a game? And that was your weekly briefing for the week ending June 7th. I'm Brian Santo. Catch us here next week at EE Times On Air.